Good evening, and welcome to the Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Tonight, a tale of prophecy, democracy, and rolling stones. Democracy Will Prevail and the Stones Will Rumble was originally released November 4th of 2020 and is read to you tonight by me with additional voice work provided by Lunar Lucy and music by Petar Merdian. Though this story takes place in a time where our right to vote was a farce, the Czechs do live in a multi-party democracy now. What's the best way to celebrate that democracy, you ask? Why through leaving the show a 5-star review on iTunes and Spotify? Be a good global citizen and do your part. With all that out of the way, tip your hat to civil society, cast your ballot, and enjoy the tale. It's 1985, and I am in a room full of lost children. Outside, in the center of the stadium, a thousand clean-shaven men in white shorts march around in rectangular shapes to show off the strength of the nation. The spectators aren't too enthused. They're only here because there is nothing better happening in communist Czechoslovakia this afternoon. But they are distracted enough to lose their kids in the crowd. I guard their offspring while they indulge in the propaganda. A group of six-year-olds stand next to a cheap plastic home in the corner of the room, arguing about their respective roles in the game of house that is being organized. Daughter chaperone, the tired-looking state security agent, quietly watches them while puffing on a cigarette. I asked him to stop smoking when the first confused child stumbled in, but in response, he just asked the kid whether his parents smoke at home. When the kid nodded yes, the state security agent continued puffing, and he hasn't stopped puffing since. Time passes sluggishly. I try to occupy myself by watching the performance happening outside, but looking at the athletic youths just reminds me of my own gut. When I was young, I was a long-distance runner. I was an impressive long-distance runner. The Olympics were my way out from behind the Iron Curtain, but an unfortunate choice of clothing obliterated that career path. My mind starts to tumble down a slope of self-loathing, but before I start thinking about my uncle or the t-shirt, another child is brought in. A big-eyed blonde girl of no older than eight. Her yellow puffy jacket zipped up to her neck and a look of confusion on her face. Daughter chaperone keeps his eyes on the arguing children, so I attend to the lost lamb. It's going to be okay, she says, before I have a chance to introduce myself. This will all end soon. Yes, it will, I reply, somewhat touched by her pioneering spirit. Soon the event will end and your parents will come and take you home. She nods, smiling as if she wasn't lost. Can I have some water and syrup, mister? I oblige, pouring her a shot of the thick strawberry liquid and watering it down from the sink. She grabs the cup with both hands and guzzles down the mixture like a stranded desert dweller, but her face turns sour when the drink is empty. Don't like it? She shakes her head, extending the cup back to me. Would you like some water? She nods. The cup of water is drained with a similar zeal, but she doesn't grimace afterwards. Instead, she simply sighs and makes a loud proclamation. The syrup is not good, but that's okay. One day I will drink Coca-Cola. I laugh at the kid's joke, but my eyes quickly drift over to the state security agent. The child talking about Western goods tends to attract the spotlight of the party to the parents. Luckily, the chain-smoking man is not listening. All of his attention is focused on the debate next to the playhouse. None of the children want to play the role of the father or mother in the game of house. They all want to be the dog. What's your name? 
I ask the girl. Vera? She says. And before I have a chance to introduce myself, she walks over to the window. Outside, the men gather into white-shorted mounds of flesh and hoist each other up into the air. This will all be over soon, she says. Back in 1948, the Strauff Stadium was used for a mass protest against the rising influence of the Communist Party. By 1949, the Communist Party and its Soviet puppeteers had taken over every meaningful section of our government, and any memories of protests for democracy were wiped from the public record. There would still be elections, but the choices were limited. It was either voting for the Communist Party, or not voting at all. Instead of protests, the Strauff Stadium would be the site of the Spartakiad. Every five years, the party would organize a mass gymnastic show to sweep all the country's problems beneath a horde of muscle and flexible backs. Do you like the show? I ask, joining her by the window. No, she says, furrowing her brow. It's not very fun to watch. No one is laughing. Well, I offer, it will all be over soon. Yes, it will all be over soon, she says, her voice rising. And then I will never see another Spartakiada again. Well, never say never, I laugh, raising my voice for the benefit of the state security agent in the back of the room. Maybe in five years, your parents will take you here and you'll have a lot more fun. She looks out at the mosaic of crawling bodies outside and shakes her head. I will never see another Spartakiada again, she says. And neither will you, and neither will he, and neither will- Don't say that, I say kneeling down to her height. You can't talk like that in front of strangers. You can only talk like that in front of your parents. The state security agent looks at us as he lights up another cigarette. For a flicker of a flame, I worry that he will put away his matchbox and ask the girl questions about her parents. But a screeching from the playhouse grips away his attention. All the children still want to be dogs, and their argument is getting heated. The girl blinks. She looks in my eyes, but her mind is somewhere far away. This will all end soon, she says, as if she was reassuring me. Democracy will prevail, and the stones will rumble in the stadium. Let's, uh, get you out of that coat, shall we? I say, hoping to change the subject. As if she was suddenly pulled back into the real world, the girl spreads out her arms and presents the zipper to me. I lean in to help her undress, hoping that all talk of political provocation will disappear. But as soon as my ear is near her mouth, she starts to whisper. The men will no longer trudge through the mud in white shorts, she says, with the air of a passionate oracle. They will rise in the stands wearing jean jackets and sing. They will dance. They will let themselves be carried to another world through the sounds of an electric guitar and the rumble of drums. I let go of the zipper. That far-off look is back in her big eyes, but it's infinitely more distant. It's like she's looking past me past the room, past the stadium into a world that does not yet exist. Your father will get back his job and his honor, she says. He used to be a historian, a popular historian who was seen as the single most valuable mind in regards to the Hasset Wars of the 15th century. After his brother emigrated west, the party gave my father a chance to make amends by publishing a series of pre-written texts under his own name. Far too proud to shed nuance from his writing, my father declined. But in six months, he went from being the head of a university department to being a storefront window washer. All that he was left with was his meager salary and the packages my uncle used to send. He will no longer listen to forbidden records because they will no longer be forbidden. 
He will sit with his brother and you under one roof, and you will all drink Coca-Cola, she says with an unshakable confidence. Memories of my father dialing the gramophone down to the lowest volume so that the neighbors won't hear the smuggled record crawl through my mind. For a moment, I am there with him, nodding along to the groove of sympathy for the devil, but soon enough I am back in the stadium. The state security agent's dark eyes are watching us with suspicion. He's no longer listening to the children argue. He's listening to us. What a funny joke! I yell. Did they teach you that in school or at home? She blinks, watching a world unravel somewhere in the depths of her imagination. The argument by the playhouse increases in volume and the eyes that watch us drift back to more interesting things. Can I have another glass of water, mister? She says, an innocence returning to her voice. How do you know all this? I ask. How do you know about my father? The lack of surveillance from the state security agent calms me down somewhat, but a different kind of discomfort churns in the pit of my stomach. The look in the little girl's eyes makes me uncomfortable beyond words. I see things, she says. I see things, and I know it's all going to be okay. This will all end soon. Can I have another glass of water, mister? I oblige, but I find my hands shaking as I work the tap. My mind fills with a kaleidoscope of painful memories. I see the state security agents interviewing my father about my uncle's whereabouts. I hear the soft crackling of the mysterious packages that would arrive from the west. I feel the burning shame the core of my being, as any chance at a career in sport is destroyed by one unfortunate item of clothing. When I turn around, the little girl's coat is off and draped around one of the small chairs. My heart misses a beat. A familiar cartoon cowboy smiles at me from her shirt. Each step I take is calculated. I walk towards the little girl, put down the cup of water on the windowsill, and grab her yellow jacket. If he sees you wearing this, you and your parents will be in big trouble, I say, putting the little girl back into her coat. You can't wear things like this in front of people like him. Her blank eyes stay glued to mine as I dress her. She doesn't resist. You used to have a shirt like this one. She says, when the zipper covers her politically suggestive clothing. The children by the playhouse are voting amongst themselves on who gets to play the role of the dog and who gets to play the undesired role of the master. The state security agent watches over them the same way that his colleagues watch over the polls in less negotiable elections. His watchful eyes are too distracted to notice the girl and me. Yes, I say. I used to have a shirt just like that one. When I was 16, I ran a race against 200 other boys and won. I trained. I trained with the desperation of a person who knew that victory would radically alter his life. I knew that if I ran fast enough, I could make it past the barbed-wired borders of my country and run through stadiums in the West. The race itself was one long harrowing plea for my lungs and legs to slow down, but it wasn't until I crossed the finish line that the true pain came. The organizer celebrated my speed, my stamina, the Herculean willpower that left everyone else standing in my dust. But as soon as my contestant number was removed, the celebration stopped. Beneath the paper number, there was a smiling cowboy, and beneath that smiling cowboy was a single word, America. With the cowboy's cigarette-lipped smile, my fate was sealed. The shirt my uncle had sent me was deemed a political provocation. My name was taken down and any athletic group I attempted to join declined my membership on moral grounds. 
There was no running away from the party. Who are you? I ask. How do you know all this? I'm Viera. She replies. And I know things. I know this will all end. The spot the Kyoto will end. The regime will end. And all the bad men in the government will go away. Democracy will prevail, and the stones will rumble in the stadium. Vera, I say, grabbing her shoulders. You can't talk like that. Not here, not in front of people like him. He's a state security officer, and if he hears you, he will... He will not be a policeman for long, she says loudly. Excuse me? The man lumbers to his feet in another gust of smoke. Are you talking about me, young lady? He sneers, looking like a dragon whose lair has been disturbed. Oh no, officer, she's just... Yes. She interrupts me. There will be no more Spartakiada, and there will be no more secret police. When democracy prevails and the stones come rumbling to the stadium, you will not have a badge. You will walk around with a big camera and capture all the smiles and joy and celebration. He looks at me, as if I had anything to do with the words coming out of the girl's mouth. What is she talking about? He asks me. What are the names of your parents, little girl? He asks her. Instead of the Spartakiada, there will be songs, and you'll be happy. And you'll sing along, because you know the words, because you've been listening to the music all your life. When this all ends, you'll sing loud and proud, because there will be no one to stop you. What are the names of your parents? He repeats with controlled anger as he reaches for his notepad. She blinks. The eyes that look out from her little head are not that of a child. They're ancient. They look like they've seen empires rise and fall. Then she blinks again. Her tiny feet shuffle on the floor. Mister, I need to pee, she says, like a child. Um, the bathroom is right across the- No. The security agent interrupts me. No, we are not done here. You tell me the names of your parents right this instant. She stands with her legs crossed and an innocent smile on her face. The anger in the policeman's eyes festers and is ready to burst, but before he has a chance to say anything, a screeching yelp cuts through the room. The playhouse dog debate descends into violence. Cigarette still in his mouth, the man leaps at the fighting kids, trying to separate them. Don't just stand there, you moron! He yells, spilling ash into the hair of a boy hell-bent on becoming a dog. Help me separate these brats! I jump into the fray, but my presence doesn't help much. The children are all screaming and throwing punches at each other, demanding that they are the rightful family pets and my arms aren't fast enough to contain all of them. Just as the pandemonium of short limbs and high-pitched cries seems to have reached its peak, a gruff voice cuts through the chaos. Enough! He yells, in the same way his colleagues do when breaking up underground meetings. All you punks stop fighting this instant! The children simmer down in fear, but the boy with cigarette ash in his hair retains his zeal. How else are we meant to know who the best dog is? You can all be dogs for all I care, the state security agent yells. But if one more of you throws a punch, I will be having a serious talking to with your parents. The children exchange looks of confusion, but soon enough they all descend on all fours. Woof. The once agitated boy whispers as he gently brushes the ash out of his hair with a make-believe paw. Oof. His playmates reply quietly. Where'd the girl go? The security agent asks, 
once the children are sufficiently pacified. I don't know, I reply, looking at the empty spot where she once stood. Bathroom, I guess? With a grunt, the state security agent sits back down in his corner and lights up another cigarette. But as he smokes, he doesn't watch the children. He stares out of the window as invisible gears turn behind his eyes. The Spartakiada comes to a close. The docile dogs transform back into loud children as their parents arrive and, soon enough, I am left alone with the state security agent. What do we do about uh, the missing girl? I ask. Once the janitorial staff starts roaming the halls, he shrugs, absent-minded, still stuck in an internal debate not privy to my ears. Probably found her parents, he says. Not of our business as far as I'm concerned. With a solitary puff of the cigarette, his eyes raise to meet mine. For a moment, his gaze remains cold, probing me for trustworthiness, but soon a glimmer of sympathy shines through. My brother works at the Czech television, he says. He helps organize the workshops for new cameramen and I've been thinking about it. This job is... He doesn't finish out the sentiment. He simply blows out a cloud of smoke in an exasperated sigh. Do you think this will all end? I hear myself asking. I immediately bite the inside of my cheek hard enough to taste blood. There are certain questions that shouldn't be asked in a totalitarian state. No, he says, with the gentlest hint of sadness. Me neither, I say, and I mean it. The state surveillance, the travel bans, the oppression, none of it seems like something that could ever end. Living my whole existence behind the Iron Curtain, I find myself unable to imagine a life not lived in a shadow. Less than five years later, however, my imagination is brought to the test. A peaceful march gets punctuated by the rubber batons of the riot police. News of a murdered student spreads through the country like wildfire. And even though the news is false, and even though the student in question appears on television demanding that he is alive, no one listens. After 50 years of chipping away at the public's trust, the party is given no leeway. The people take to the streets. The country unites beneath a rally cry of bringing it all to an end. Still reeling back from the war in Afghanistan, the Soviets refused to step in with their tanks. Without a superpower on their side, the party makes concessions that no one would have conceived of before. Through a bloodless revolution, Czechoslovakia sheds the vice of totalitarianism and becomes a democratic country. As the nation enters the 90s, the question of the Spartakiada is brought into debate. Most want to leave the remnants of the totalitarian state behind but there are still voices that call for a show, be it with gymnastics or without. The people just want to be entertained. No gymnastics are performed, but entertainment is provided. On August 19, 1990, the Rolling Stones perform a concert in the Strahov Stadium for 100,000 newly freed Czechs. Democracy prevails, and the Stones rumble. I didn't sleep the day before the concert. My entire night was filled with frantic questions about how the strange little girl predicted the unpredictable, how she could have known that the unyielding grasp of the party would loosen. But by the time I entered the stadium, I gave up on those thoughts. It didn't matter why or how she made her predictions. What mattered was she was right. Decades later, the footage of the concert has made its way online. 
I've tried forcing my kids to sit down and watch for the whole thing with their old man, but their generation isn't very good at faking interest. They live in a different world, and I guess, past the sentimentality of my youth, I don't blame them. But every once in a while, when I feel like shedding a couple decades, I pull up the recording on the computer and listen to the sweet rumble of the once-forbidden rock and roll echo through the stadium. I close my eyes. I let myself get lost in the memories. For a couple of blessed songs, I am young again. For a couple of loud moments, I am back with my newly re-employed father and my repatriated uncle, singing along to the songs that we had to play quietly on the record player. But when the Stones start playing Sympathy for the Devil, I open my eyes and watch the screen. For a split second, I see myself, standing between two aging men who look like me, wearing a t-shirt with a smiling cowboy. Someone from behind the lens waves, and I wave back. But the screen quickly shifts back to their performance. The camera focuses back on the band as they play their hearts out, but if you listen closely, if you listen really closely, you can hear the cameraman singing along. He sings as if he had been singing his whole life in secret and just found the bravery to share his song with the world. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kuss, Bob Kondrick, Chicken Mixer, and Daniel Wengel. If you'd like to join these fine people in supporting the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Langer. And so concludes this episode of The Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Make sure to drop by next episode for another spine-chilling story.